Tēnā koea, mai, hardy mai, my name is Will Appleby and welcome to Animal Matters. My guest today is someone who needs little introduction. I'm chatting with Member of Parliament for the Green Party, Chloe Swarbrick. This is Chloe's second term in Parliament and her first as the Green Party's Animal Welfare Spokesperson, a portfolio left open by the resignation of Gareth Hughes last year. She's hit the ground running, and during that time she's been outspoken in her opposition to greyhound racing and live export, amongst many other issues. We'll cover both of those topics today, and more. It's worth noting, since the recording of this interview, the Ministry for Primary Industries has confirmed to SAFE that exports of livestock by sea will continue until 30 April 2023, which will be just over two years to the day since Damien O'Connor announced that the industry would be phased out. This is hugely disappointing, as the two-year time frame is one that both Swarbrick and SAFE have been trying to reduce. So, without further ado, here is my corridor with Chloe Swarbrick, MP. Well, look, thank you, Chloe, for joining me this afternoon. I really do appreciate it. You've had a hectic week. Um, So, yeah, thank you for sitting down and talking about animals with us. Thank you so much for having me. It's always a hectic week, so it's good to be able to find some time to have a corridor at, I guess, more of a visionary uh, or aspirational level about what we can be doing as opposed to just fighting fires when they crop up. Yeah, for sure. So I just want to go back a little bit. You've been in your current role as animal welfare spokesperson for the Green Party um, since just after the election. During the election campaign last year, you spoke at Greater Goods in Christchurch, which myself and actually a few others were as well. And you mentioned that you were a vegan, hence the venue choice, big fans of Greater Goods. So a lot of us were really thrilled that uh, you went on to become the animal welfare spokesperson when Gareth Hughes retired. I've seen you comment a couple of times, especially around the uh, cannabis referendum, that you never really went into politics to campaign on drug law reform, but you kind of ended up as the go-to spokesperson for drugs, and especially during that campaign. Would it be safe to assume that animal welfare is a new area of advocacy for you? Yeah. <laughs> safe to assume that much. Um, I, you know, have had the immense privilege over the past several years now uh, sitting in close proximity to Gareth Hughes, who was our former animal welfare spokesperson. Uh, And there was a number of uh, pieces of overlap, particularly in, you know, small business and building communities with regard to animal welfare uh, and actually local government too when it comes to fireworks (laughs) and the regulation of those displays. Uh, But also um, with the mahi of Mojo Matters um, and the overlap therein and, you know, how she became pigeonholed uh, in her uh, personal identifier of somebody who was deaf and part of the deaf and disabled community, uh, but actually came into Parliament originally to advocate for animal welfare and water quality. When I picked up her uh, bill for election access, a fund to establish, um, you know, removal of barriers for folks with disabilities in the future. Um, and dug more into Mojo's background, I became all the more familiar with her work there. So um, I originally actually um, kind of, I guess you could say, started touching on the broader realm of animal welfare when I was about 13 or 14 um, and I decided uh, to go vegetarian 
Um, that wasn't at that point in time because of a sense of, you know, angst about seeing videos as sometimes as a trigger for some people and definitely was for some of my friends. But uh, for, from quite a actually like philosophically utilitarian basis where I was just kind of going, why is it that things are suffering in order for me to eat when that isn't necessary? I was within a family unit that uh, I was the only vegetarian, so my dad and my sister um, kind of continued eating meat. And, you know, when it comes to the kind of advocacy that I do in all spaces uh, and all of the dozen or so portfolios that I've got, I've always found that one of the best ways to move people is not by, you know, individually blaming them um, for these things, but by pointing to, I guess, the systematic drivers of why they choose to do these things or, you know, the, the constructs that inform the choices that are available to us. So, yeah, that's kind of how I guess I started um, getting into it. My grandma uh, is also a big fan of the welfare of particularly dogs. Um, so she's a, a big member of uh, here in Auckland, the Onihanga uh, dog walking community and runs a few Facebook pages. Uh, and interestingly, as I've actually found as I've got more into the weeds of, um, you know, the greyhound issue and greyhound racing issue, have found that even though she's somebody who, you know, really is what I'd seen growing up as an advocate for animal welfare, um, really hadn't quite wrapped her head around uh, the, the tragedy and the um, unnecessary deaths and uh, danger that greyhounds are subject to inside of the greyhound racing industry and very much had bought into the narrative that they love to race. <laughs> so, yeah, it's been, it's been a massive unpicking of um, a lot of those things that I've been, yeah, subject to or part of um, growing up. Wow. You've actually got far more of a background than I even realised. Um, how does it all work within your caucus when, you know, after election you're looking at spokesperson roles? Was it kind of a, you know, was it kind of an obvious, like, who's going to do animal welfare? Of course, it's Chloe. Or how did that How did that come about? So, um, I mean, I and Gareth and I had talked about it, um, but there were a few other options inside of caucus because there is obviously an overlap with um, much of our co-papa around kind of compassion um, and ensuring particularly that the environment is well cared for uh, and therefore particularly um, Indigenous biodiversity. Uh, and to that extent, you know, there are a few other people who kind of were interested in it. And I guess just when we were looking at the different bundles of portfolios and who and where could, you know, connect a few dots and um, advocate for certain things, um, for some reason or another, I, you know, ended up landing with me. And I was, you know, quite happy to um, move ahead with that of being quite engaged in um, a few different ways that we can make changes there. I believe later we'll get onto the issue of greyhound racing, um, you know, uh, actual, uh, the, the divergence between um, animal welfare legislation and regulation and therein I've spoken particularly to Chris Pink who's the chair of the um, the Regs Review Committee in Parliament and just looking into a broader review or inquiry into why it is that we continue to allow regulations that are created that are completely inconsistent with the well-beings as outlined in that legislation uh, and he also happens to be you know the MP for Helensville which is where we have one of the last remaining rodeos in the country uh, so there's a number of different things that I've kind of got um, my, my hands on now uh, that I'm in this role. 
You mentioned Greyhound Racing, so um, I'm interested in chatting about that. You've previously stated that you want to submit a member's bill to ban Greyhound Racing. When Grant Robertson announced the Greyhound Racing Review, one of the things he said it would look at is whether a more fundamental look at Greyhound Racing industry is required. Are you getting much of an indication from the Beehive that Greyhound Racing could end in Aotearoa? So really good question there because I actually asked a parliamentary written question. I've just brought it up now on my computer to Grant Robertson as the Minister for Racing. Um, and this is all publicly available on uh, Parliament's website. They're called parliamentary written questions. I asked him, uh, would the terms of reference for the review into Greyhound Racing enable or allow it to recommend a winding down of the industry? And he responded, and I quote, that is not an issue covered in the terms of reference. Uh, so pretty disappointing <laughs> response there, given that I tried to provide, I guess, an, an open field for him to say, yes, this could happen or no, this can't happen. And he indicated, uh, no, it, it, it is not looking like it is going to happen at this point in time. Um, that said, I have had some encouraging conversations uh, so far and have also put in a number of other parliamentary written questions around terms of reference, what has been discussed and otherwise. And I think you know, with the substantial number of reviews that we've had into the greyhound racing industry over the past uh, decade now, and consistently having these recommendations that are not being met by the industry, at a certain point we have to say, well, the social license has been entirely eroded, but also realise that these deaths and industry, uh, these deaths and injuries, are actually built into the bottom line of how the industry operates. You know, I don't think anybody who is in the industry, even those most ardent supporters, could say that they could fathom there being a greyhound racing industry if there was no deaths or injuries. They may say they aspire to that, uh, but it's not within the grasp of reality because, again, it's built into the way that this industry operates. Uh, so we continue pushing on that. To your point around um, the members' bill, I have that members' bill drafted um, and have, you know, through different channels, um, been in discussions with the Animal Law Society, I believe it's called, um, phenomenal group who most recently have done a report on the inconsistencies between, again, animal welfare legislation and regulation as applied to farm animals uh, and also uh, obviously been in touch with SAFE. <laughs> um, so we've got that all drafted and ready to go, and that is a matter of consistently engaging um, across the parliamentary aisle with those who hopefully see the sense in this. Yeah, and do, are you getting much of an indication from across the aisle that um, there is interest in supporting this? Uh, I, I've had an indication, but again, um, as I've kind of found throughout my time in politics, I mean, you mentioned before one of my more controversial portfolios of drug law reform. Um, completely frankly, uh, the kinds of conversations that I have behind the scenes are quite different to the kinds of sentiments that are expressed by politicians publicly. And, you know, nowhere is that more evident than in the realm of greyhound racing. Uh, there is this really peculiar fear. Um, well, it's not even a peculiar fear, because to be honest, if you, you know, speak to most animal welfare advocates and activists, they would say that racing of, of all animals, um, you know, particularly horse racing, like, I don't know why it is that we're celebrating something that does result in the death and injury of horses. But the concern that I keep hearing and keep having pushback is, well, if we are to end or wind down greyhound racing, then, you know, horse racing is the next thing on the chopping block. So it's, 
yeah, that that's probably where the challenge is right now. Um, and I remember a few years ago uh, when I didn't hold this portfolio, but I was a Green MP and Gareth was our spokesperson on animal welfare. I think it was um, named the Melbourne Cup or one of those horse racing events where everybody gets dressed up really fancy and basically just smashed on a ton of alcohol uh, and bet a whole lot of money and wastes a whole lot of money uh, watching horses, you know, sometimes to the point of death. Um, Why is it that we do these things and why is it that we consider them fun when it kind of is quite barbaric? Uh, and yeah, that was the first time that I kind of encountered chucking out what I thought was a pretty um, common sense position and having quite substantive pushback uh, from members of the public. Um, but I, one area that I do have, um, you know, uh, quite a, quite a substantial amount of faith in where the general public sentiments have landed uh, is in the area of live export. I think that you know for our um, Minister for Primary Industries, uh, Damien O'Connor, who I've been pushing on a number of other issues uh, to come out and say that it is going to be wound down um, and that therefore it is not good news, um, is indicative of just how far the um, needle has shifted um, and kind of, for lack of a better term, what's often you know stated middle New Zealand. Uh, but the challenge now is pushing him to have a definitive timeline and to bring it forward as far forward as possible and it's been um, quite a circular process trying to lodge those parliamentary bidding questions and consistently getting answers from him about how you know we're not going to phase it out quicker because we uh, supposedly need to fulfill all of these commercial contracts but then being unable to tell me what the commercial contracts are because it's commercially sensitive and potentially the minister doesn't know which just seems rather logically inconsistent. Mm, yeah, I've read some of those questions that you have put to the minister that are the answers can be a little bit convoluted, I suppose. Um, but yeah, what is the where do you think things are at? Because it, it seems like it's been, you know, a reasonably long time since the announcement was made that they were going to phase out live export. And it's kind of just been radio silence since then. Is there, I guess, an opportunity to to, to reduce that phase out period or is it kind of just locked in? that's going to have to be? No, I mean, if you look at the statements of the minister at that point in time, uh, it was really clear that the maximum was was two years. And I think the very admission that it has to be phased out is an admission that this is not good practice. Uh, and therefore the question becomes, well, why is the phase out two years? And if it's about, quote-unquote, commercial contracts, then surely you can provide some level of information about those commercial contracts. Whereas what I'm finding is that I'm having to do on a very piecemeal basis, actually by virtue of the advocacy and information gathering that's occurring on the ground by uh, incredible grassroots organisers and animal advocates, in a very piecemeal way, asking the minister about specific contracts and about, you know, kind of the the health and safety in those places and whether they have actually been granted permission to do what they're doing, uh, which just feels really unnecessarily a barrier to excavating why things are the way that they are. And again, to, to that point around the time frame, 
if the time frame is um, two years, it then becomes, well, how long is a piece of string? Um, why, why is it, you know, what information has the minister actually um, considered when it comes to the, the time period for phasing it out uh, sooner? Um, and again, I've received very opaque responses to date on all of those questions. So, yeah, unfortunate, but again, we continue pushing because the very basic admission remains that this this practice is not good news yeah yeah i mean in, uh, in the minister's own statement when they announced the ban um he said something along the lines of you know they can't guarantee the animal welfare outcomes for animals on those ships mm-hmm. so you know as there in black and white he knows it's bad news and he's getting obviously lobbied by industry to extend it or even drop the ban altogether. Is is there going to be perhaps a situation if they shorten the the phase-out period? um, Is compensation on the cards? Is that, you know, something that he's going to have to to consider if that um, two-year period will will be shorter? Again, possibly. Uh, But at this point in time, with the inability to access basic information about the number of commercial contracts that supposedly exist, which act as a barrier to phasing out earlier, it's nigh on impossible to know or to calculate. And that's why I think that there is a democratic basic interest in the public being aware of how the minister is making these decisions. And the rationale that I've so far been provided about why this information is not publicly available is because it is supposedly commercially sensitive. Um, and again, that just becomes, uh, you know, how long is a piece of string? How ambiguous do you want to make this? How much do you want to extrapolate, uh, you know, this shield that you're hiding behind? Um, so, yeah, it, it, it's nigh on impossible to tell. It, it very much is plausible uh, that there could be some form of compensation but at this point in time we can't know that because we don't know how many of these contracts exist and for how long they're contracted to which is the point of indicating that these contracts are no longer going to be able to be legal you're not going to be able to do these anymore in this country in two years but I would be astounded and would find it incredibly problematic if the irony of noting that we were going to have a phase out within two years meant that there were people signing new contracts within that time frame, which is part of the problem, right? Because we're not yet able to get access to that information, which again uh, means that it's nigh on impossible to, to do some of these democratic functions that I was supposedly elected to do in terms of exposing this info. Before we wrap up, and um, I didn't put this question to you in advance, so I apologise, but you mentioned it earlier, um, the situation on Waiheke at, um, at Putiki. There's there's an animal welfare aspect to that as well, because there are native species at the location. Could you give us a, a rundown of what the state of affairs is there at the moment? As, as much of a nutshell as I possibly can without taking <laughs> another half hour of your time. Um, so... In a nutshell, from the animal welfare perspective in particular, uh, but also some context geographically. So there is, um, about five years ago, there was an attempt to um, build a marina at Mateatea. Um, Mateatea, if you've ever taken particularly the Fuller's Ferry into Waiheke from Auckland City, uh, you would have arrived at Mateatea Wharf. 
there was an attempt to build a marina, again, for um, bodies, for people who could afford quite a substantial ticket to have um, a posting at that marina. Um, and the community organised and rallied against that. Uh, there were a number of court cases and, you know, grassroots rallying and fundraising. And at the end of it, the community won. Uh, but it wasn't without a severe amount of exhaustion of both time and energy, but also of uh, literal resources and money. Um, then uh, in about 2016, so quite soon thereafter, there was an application by another development company to build a uh, marina at what uh, is known broadly as Kennedy Point, uh, but its thrill name uh, is Putiki Bay. So this is an area that uh, has a relatively kind of shelly beach, a, a pebbly beach, and uh, it has a rock wall along it. Uh, it's also on the other side where the sea link ferry or the car ferry comes into Waiheke. So uh, this bay was not so much fought against by the community in the same way that Matiatia was primarily, I think, because of the level of exhaustion that had occurred by that point, but also because it probably wasn't as as well used. But there was still um, some organising and some fundraising that occurred by an entity known as Save Kennedy Point. Uh, one of the key points of contention was a uh, penguin protection plan and what you know SKP stated was a inadequate penguin protection plan. So there were, this went all the way through the courts in terms of the Resource Management Act and the approval given to it. There also is a really substantial Tetsuritio Waitangi basis for the pushback against it, which is that, um, you know, based on the designated iwi group who uh, the Kennedy Point Marina engaged with based on Auckland Council's advice, uh, it was quite narrow per, you know, what most people who would say honouring Tetsuritio Waitangi would look like. So that's another really key fundamental point um, is that when it comes to uh, that engagement with Iwi and Hapu in that space for an area that is actually really, really significantly um, culturally important, it is where Waka came in um, and where, you know, they were taken apart and there's a huge amount of history there and for particularly North Power, uh, but also many Iwi and Hapu who, um, you know, have engaged with uh, the Horaki Golf or Te Kapa Moana. Um, there is going to be a floating car park built under present plans. There is going to be a number of um, berths for these marinas. The cheapest of um, the berths in this marina is, I believe, about $180,000. So there's also an equity issue therein. Um, but where a lot of the court cases or the court case has um, kind of been caught up is in this rock wall. So this uh, rock wall was uh, created originally by um, the predecessor to Auckland Transport, and it's where there are now a number of koroga or little blue penguins. Uh, in the original penguin management plan, there was the identification of, I believe off the top of my head, it was nine. It was definitely, um, in, you know, less than a dozen penguins. Um, subsequently, we've come to learn that it's more like about 30 or so penguins that have been identified in that space. Um, there also was a perceivably quite narrow uh, read of the impact uh, that this development would have on those kōrora little blue penguins. And we have seen this uh, really fundamentally when it comes to the clash of what the developer keeps referring to as its 127 resource consent conditions. In the Environment Court, uh, as of last week, Ngāti Power Trust Board uh, kind of took them um, to court, the Environment Court, with an intention to get an injunction and an order for stop work 
on the basis that uh, the way that the developer was interpreting the area that it was responsible for the management of these little blue penguins uh, was only if it was directly impacting the rock wall and removing those rocks. Whereas, in fact, as Nancy Paula Trust Board asserted and as was found actually by the Environment Court, it's the impact of the entire bay. So, you know, driving piles into the ground um, and all of the other works that's necessary to develop this monstrous, massive marina and um, this literal floating car park. Uh, and that means that, in the words of Professor John Cochran, who is pretty well renowned as one of the leading Horora um, experts in the country, uh, that it is highly likely that developers therefore are breaching their resource consent conditions. Um, just finally on all of this, I really want to shout out uh, to Karen from Native Bird Rescue on Waiheke, uh, who first raised the alarm about this when she was contacted by a contractor to the developer about three to six months ago now, who uh, kind of called her and said, hey, you've got the dock permit to handle these uh, native birds. Uh, can you please come and remove them from their burrows? And Karen rightfully said, what on earth are you doing? And immediately it was all over social media. And then we had the likes of hoo-ha um, out there and other um, animal advocates just saying, this, this is not on. You don't get to destroy a habitat. Albeit if you can argue that it's artificial, you still can't destroy the foundations of a house that something lives in without an adequate plan for kind of what comes next. So, yeah, that's, that's it in a nutshell. The occupation is ongoing. Um, my role as local MP uh, is to try and facilitate dialogue between um, those who are occupying uh, those experts, the likes of Professor John Cochran, um, obviously the Nice Power Trust Board, the police now who are involved, and the developers who have obviously contracted the security guards uh, where things have got a bit tense of late. The goal, just to call up... Um, Karen and say, hey, can you remove these birds? Like, that's incredible. He's obviously viewing it through the lens of a transactional sort of, you know, nature. It's like, I've got, you know, a problem here. These birds are in my way. Who can I get to remove them? And I've just, you know, like, this is this is in the context as well of uh, at the end of last year, start of this year, there was a rahui placed in the waters around Waiheke uh, for sake of the regeneration of Taonga species. Um, last week as well, there was actually a rahui placed by Ngāti Paua um, around the, the rock wall uh, and around the bay for sake of protecting the kōrora. Um, it just, yeah, it, it boggles my mind in the broader context as well of us having had about 20 years now of reports every three years from the Hauraki Golf Forum saying uh, our Hauraki is in decline. <laughs> We are decimating species. There are increasing numbers of kinnabarans because the ecosystem is totally out of whack. It looks like a desert on the sea floor and large swathes of it. We continue to allow dredging and dumping and bottom trawling. Uh, we have now the Minister for the Environment and um, who at the time was filling in for Kitty Tapuellen, um, Dr. Aisha Burrell, who was the um, fill-in um, Deputy uh, Conservation Minister, stating that in response to sea change, a report on, you know, it was groundbreaking at the time from about five years ago, uh, that we would just end bottom trawling out and out, but the ministers indicated that we needed some form of bottom trawling through corridors to remain. And when I asked him about this, in, or when Eugenie Sage actually asked him about this in the House, um, he indicated that it was for scientific purposes, which 
again, just really sounds like when Japan as a country says that they need to continue whaling for scientific purposes, it's just mind-blowing. Um, and, you know, identified in those Hauraki Gulf Forum reports, we also have uh, ocean sprawl identified as one of the key issues, which is in much the same way that we continue to sprawl in our cities because we're not willing to do density well um, or invest in public transport or amenities or otherwise, but just continue to get into kind of greenfields development and, um, you know, take up some of our fertile soil and, you know, push into what should be, you know, parks and spaces that are for nature to thrive, we have continued to pile more things into the ground and the sea floor, which has continued to disturb the ecosystem. So I have it in writing from the Hauraki Golf Forum when I wrote to them at the beginning of this year that this marina is inconsistent and irreconcilable with their vision for a healthy Hauraki Golf and the ecosystem inherent in that. So just from whichever way you look at it, it doesn't really make sense unless you look at it from the way of, you know, how do you make some money? For sure. I'd love to get into the fishing industry, but... <laughs> yeah, there's a lot to unpack in there, particularly when it comes to the quota management system and <laughs> safety, and, you know, that's not even touching the sides on animal wealth. Totally. Yeah, we'll be here all day. Look, um, I'll let you back to it. Thank you so much, Chloe. It's a pleasure to speak with you, and um, thank you for the mahi that you do. No, thank you so much. And I also just want to shout out to, you know, all of those grassroots activists and advocates. Um, you know, it, it is uh, the constant conversations um, and, you know, bringing forward that information out there into the public sphere that, that's changed things um, all through animal welfare and how we consider it as a society. So, yeah. Thank you for listening to Animal Matters. This podcast is brought to you by Safe for Animals, New Zealand's leading animal rights organisation and produced by myself, Will Appleby. Make sure you subscribe to stay across Animal Matters on whatever your favourite podcast platform is. If you're listening on Apple, please leave a rating as it helps other listeners to find the show. Until next time, mā